Good morning, church. Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Um, I don't know, do the technical difficulties extend to the YouTube? I've invited my, uh, my son and daughter and sister to watch on YouTube, so I, I hope this goes well. Um, but uh, as, I, as I thought about this this morning, one thing I always think about in terms of preaching, I grew up in the, uh, the First Baptist Church of Los Angeles, a huge Mid-Wilshire Church in Los Angeles, a 2,000-seat sanctuary with a main room and a balcony, and they had a huge pulpit, and on on that pulpit, it had the words from John 12, 21, facing the preacher, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. And that's that's the whole idea here. So let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit will help us to see your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, more clearly as he has revealed to us in your Holy Word, the Bible. Help us to see Jesus in the beginning of your church at Antioch. Help us to see Jesus in the life of Barnabas. And help us to see Jesus in the life of Saul. We ask these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Our scripture this morning, and I don't know if there's going to be, oh my gosh, they may have it. (laughs) One one unfortunate thing is, uh, you know, for almost 40 years, I've used the NIV version, as as Pastor Mike likes to call it, the nearly inspired version. Uh, and, And I've gotten used to its words. And it's hard for me to switch to the New American Standard or the, the English Standard. But So when I'm reading, it's from the NIV. And if a word or two is different, don't get excited. Have, have more grace. <laughs> okay. But we're going to start with uh, our full passage this morning is Acts 11, uh, 19 to 30. And I don't know if that's all on the screen or not. But we're going to start just with Acts 11, verses 19 to 21. And, and I'll just read it out loud to you. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with, the, with the, the martyrdom of Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. But some of them, however, uh, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and began to speak to the Gentiles in Antioch, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So uh, I'm going to start with a little bit of geography, and so I hope your eyes don't glaze over. I'll go quickly. (laughs) Who knows where Phoenicia is? It's the capital of Arizona, right? No, no, no. Phoenicia is is a country about 15 miles wide, 120 miles long, along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. It starts a little bit above Caesarea and goes north from there. Cyprus is an island in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, and Antioch, Antioch is very important. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time, after Rome, Alexandria, and Egypt, and the next largest city was Antioch, okay? Uh, and then, and, and, and Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, also was, was noteworthy because it was the home of Barnabas. Uh, just to skip that. Uh, just a leather note Tarsus Tarsus was the birthplace of Paul where he 
uh, spent at least his very early life before going to Jerusalem to get schooled. Uh, Tarsus is also near the, uh, the, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, but it's, it's north of the Mediterranean Ocean uh, in the, the province of Cilicia. Cilicia, I can't say it. But the, okay, but those are the those are the sort of the geography here. So first, what does verse nineteen? What does verse uh, nineteen say? You've got uh, the word is spreading in Antioch, but it's spreading only to the Jews. But what does verse twenty say? Some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene. I far, where is Cyrene? Northern coast of Af- Africa, modern day Libya. Who's who's the famous one from from Cyrene? Simon, Pastor Simon came from, no, Simon who carried the cross of Jesus came from Cyrene. And if you read Mark, you know that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And and Rufus, maybe it's just a coincidence, Rufus was one of the many people Paul greeted at the end of his letter to Romans in chapter 16 of Romans. You'll find a reference to Rufus. Maybe he was the son of Simon from Cyrene. Anyway, Uh, What does verse 20 say? They came to Antioch and they spoke to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And it's sort of interesting they say the Lord Jesus. They don't say the Messiah. They don't say the Christ, which is the Greek translation of Messiah for for anointed one. Why? Because these Greeks didn't know about the Old Testament. The words Messiah or Christ wouldn't have meant anything to them, but they did understand what a Lord was. And, and he was preaching the Lord, they were preaching the Lord Jesus to them in Antioch. Um, and what happened? Verse 21. This is great news. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number uh, believed in the Lord. So what are the two big takeaways here? I mean, the first thing we see, the gospel is spreading not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. We've seen it spreading with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8. We've seen it spreading to Gentiles with Peter and Cornelius in Acts 9 and 10. And now it's continuing to spread to Gentiles. Um, And how is it spreading? At least in these verses, it's spreading through unknown believers. We have no idea who these people were. It wasn't big name evangelists. It wasn't Barnabas or Paul. It wasn't Philip or Peter who came to Antioch. It was just believers who were dispersed in the persecution following the martyrdom of Stephen. Because God can use anyone. Okay, and what was it? Were they great speakers, gifted preachers? The Lord's hand was with them. That's what caused the gospel to spread. And a great number came to believe. And I just wanted to give a a footnote here about the great number. Uh, I was reading uh, in uh, R.C. Sproul's commentary on, uh, on Acts, and he said, you know, the, about a great number. He says, you know, the, most, uh, the largest worship service recorded in the Bible, it, any thoughts of what that might be, the biggest worship service in the Bible, was in Exodus 32 with Aaron and the golden calf and hundreds of thousands of children of Israel, and it was completely wrong. So great numbers are not necessarily an indication of the Lord's hand being with you. The Lord's hand will always result in growth, maybe small growth, maybe large growth, but growth by itself doesn't mean the Lord's hand is with you. You've got to be careful. You've got to be speaking the truth. Okay? And uh, I also think about... Uh, I heard Alistair Begg give an example one time. He talked about a church in Scotland. And uh, he said, you know, I'm not going to get this exactly right. He says, we've been very unsuccessful this year. The whole year, 
No one came forward except for, for we, Billy, so-and-so. And they say, but when he grew up, he became William so-and-so, and he became a great missionary, and hundreds and even thousands of people came to Christ because of him. So God's economy is not our economy. Great, you don't necessarily need great numbers. You just need the Lord to be with you. So I think I'm doing okay on time. I might finish early. Is anyone hungry? <laughs> I want to talk about Barnabas, starting in uh, Acts 11, in verse 22. Uh, it says, news of, of what was happening in Antioch, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people were believing. News of this reached Jerusalem, and so the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the evidence that the grace of God was working there, and he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And it says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Well, to learn about Barnabas, you, you really need to start a little bit earlier in Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, that's where we first meet Barnabas. It says he was a Levite um, from the island of Cyprus, and he had a field, he sold it, and he laid all the money at the disciples' feet. So he was generous, but it also says, and he was... His, actually, his real name was Joseph, but everyone called him Barnabas, and that means son of encouragement. He was the son of encouragement, and you see how he encouraged everyone he met. He, he, uh, we're about to see how he encouraged Paul. Just what we read here in Acts 22, 23, when he arrived at Antioch, Barnabas encouraged them all. I know the ESV says he exhorted them all, but he was also encouraging them to continue and the good work that God had started. The next time we meet Barnabas, and this is probably the most important time, is in Acts 9.27. Okay? We've read about Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, and after he was converted, uh, he immediately started preaching the word. Uh, we know it from Galatians. He also immediately, or very soon after, went to Arabia, and he spent up to three years in solitude. We don't know how much of that three years he was in Arabia, and then he returned. He, I think what happened, I don't know. I think he immediately started preaching. Acts makes clear in chapter 9, he immediately started preaching the word after his conversion, but I don't know if he was very successful, and I think he thought, I need to spend some time alone with the Lord, praying and communing with him, and so he went to Arabia to be in solitude and learn. And I think that's where Jesus met with him and taught him a lot of things. You read oh, all of Saul's letters, particularly 1 Corinthians when he's giving advice. Doesn't he always say, I have a word from the Lord? Where do you get that word? I think he got it during his time in Arabia in solitude, praying. So, but anyway, and so after his time of solitude, he's fresh, he's, he's ready to go again. He comes back to Damascus, he starts preaching again, and he's in trouble. Okay, the, the, he's, the, they're going to arrest him, they're going to kill him. Uh, you read in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 that the king uh, in, in Damascus was going to arrest him. So he's lowered through the wall and escapes to Jerusalem by the skin of his teeth. So he have, you have Saul in, in Damascus, Arabia, Damascus for three years. Probably two starts of his ministry False starts. They don't go good. He, he has to escape and go to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem, and what do we learn in Acts 9, 26? 
all the disciples were afraid of him. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. And, and that's a crisis point for the whole New Testament because it's possible God is sovereign and he wasn't going to let this happen. But it's possible that Paul, Saul's ministry ends right there. But what happens? Acts 9, 27 starts with two great words, but Barnabas, but Barnabas. But Barnabas came, and, and I think most of the translations say, say took Saul. Uh, you know, the, the Philip's New Testament says Barnabas came and took Saul by the hand. You read Swindoll's, Chuck Swindoll's biography of Paul, it says Barnabas came and took hold of Paul, Saul, and he brought him to the other disciples, and he vouched for him, and he explained about his conversion experience, and he explained that he was preaching the Lord with great effectiveness. And at that point, the disciples in Jerusalem accepted Saul as, as, a, as an evangelist. And we read that he was in, in Jerusalem for 15 days. We see that in Galatians. And he's pre moving freely, and he's preaching the gospel. And what happens again? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. And so we read in Acts that the brothers warned him, you got to get out of here, and they took him to Caesarea, and he goes off to Tarsus. If you look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 11 at the end, or I should find where the verse is. Second, yes, 2 Corinthians, uh, he, goes, he goes off to Tarsus. So anyway, so Saul's ministry has maybe, maybe three false starts. Two in Damascus, one in Jerusalem, and he goes off, goes off to Tarsus. Um, but how encouraging was Barnabas to, to take hold of Saul and bring him to the others? Um, so now we come, where are we now? Acts 22, Acts 11, verses 22 to 24. They, they send Barnabas to, to Antioch, uh, and, and this is about four or five years after Acts 9:27. And, and for one, think about one thing. Why did Jerusalem church send Barnabas? Because during that time, uh, they had come to know Barnabas and to trust Barnabas. They felt good about Barnabas. So we saw when Barnabas came to Antioch, he encouraged them. And verse 20, so verse 24, things are going great in, the Antioch, in Antioch. Uh, the, the grace of God is with them. He's encouraging them. Uh, end of verse 24, a great number of people are being brought to the Lord Barnabas is doing great in Antioch all by himself. I mean, he could have been the Peter or the James of the Antioch church. If you want to put it in, in modern terms, he could have been the John MacArthur or the, or the Rick Warren or the Chuck Swindoll or, or even the Alistair Begg of the Antioch church. But what, does, what happens next? Acts 11.25 says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. How humble is Barnabas to do that? Uh, I think the best illustration I, I've read about that is, uh, you know, the famous composer Leonard Bernstein was asked, uh, does anyone, I'm getting so old. Does any, who knows who Leonard Bernstein is? A, a handful. <laughs> Do you see the recent remake movie of West Side Story? <laughs> Leonard Bernstein wrote that. <laughs> okay, well, he was, he was a noted com, uh, composer. He was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra in the 1960s, very famous music, in the musical world a long time ago. And they asked him, 
Lenny, <laughs> what's the most, what do you think is the most, you've been a composer, what do you think is the most difficult instrument for any of the musicians to play in the orchestra? And, and he gave, I think, a very insightful reply. He said, second fiddle, second fiddle. <laughs> All these great, you know, any philharmonic orchestra has musicians who have dedicated their lives and thousands of hours of practice to be the best, the best violinist and the best cello player and the best flute player they can be, but only one of them can be the concert master. Everyone else is second fiddle but they love music and they, and they love performing so much that they're willing to sacrifice themselves and support the enterprise of the, of the orchestra of the whole. And that's, that's what Barnabas did. Okay, so Barn, we'll get back to, to Saul and Tarsus uh, in a minute. Uh, but what happened? Verse 26. Uh, Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch and it says what? And for a whole year... Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, great numbers, and the disciples were called Christians for the first time at Antioch. I thought about uh, <laughs> the church at Antioch also wel apparently welcomed Saul with open arms. I, uh, uh, well, never mind. I won't uh, get into <laughs> Ask me afterwards. <laughs> what did you not say? Uh, Okay, well, let's, let's go on then. Um, just to finish off here with, with Barnabas, uh, verses 27 to 30 says that was, uh, I think some time, more time goes by. Pastor Simon has mentioned how, you know, the, 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 these Bible verses don't always give an exact timeline. You have to understand more time was, goes by. Verse 27, some prophets came from Jerusalem down to Antioch. They told them about this great famine, and the, the church uh, at Antioch said, let's, let's take up a collection. Let's send a gift to our brothers in Jerusalem, and they selected Barnabas and Saul to take that gift. You may have some uh, verses in your, in your outlines about for further study. Uh, at the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem to Antioch after taking that gift, and they bring with them John, who was called Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin, okay? So at that point, Barnabas and Saul return to Antioch, and they've got Mark with them. Uh, you read on about, about Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 and 14, which is uh, basically describing what's come to be known as Paul's first missionary journey. Mark went with Barnabas and Saul. You know, the first place they went was the island of Cyprus. Long story short, during the ministry there, uh, Paul was, was Saul's Greek name, and he decided he wanted to be called Paul instead of Saul. And, and it's sort of interesting, from that time on, uh, Paul takes over the leadership position. Up to there, you've only seen references to Barnabas and Saul. From the island of Cyprus on, you only see references to Paul and Barnabas, except for one time in Acts uh, 15, at the, when they're in Jerusalem, where, where Barnabas had his reputation. Then you hear again about Barnabas and Paul, but everywhere else, it's Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and at the end of Acts 15, uh, Paul, they, well, one thing that happened, Acts 15 is about the Jerusalem council visit. And when they returned, when Barnabas and Paul returned to Antioch from Jerusalem, they brought with them Silas, carrying this letter with the results of the Jerusalem council. So that's where we meet Silas for the first time. 
And at the end of Acts 15, uh, you know, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go on another missionary trip. Let's strengthen the churches. And you read that Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them. But Mark had quit halfway during the first missionary journey, so Paul didn't want to take him. He thought Mark was unreliable. And the words are alarming for what's hidden beneath the surface. It says, Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. And Silas went with Paul on the second missionary journey, and Mark went with Barnabas to Cyprus. Well, we learn further, uh, history tells us that uh, Mark went on to become a, a companion and a helper of Peter. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we know that the Gospel of Mark, uh, many scholars believe, consists of a collection of Peter's preaching. Okay? Uh, and then toward the end of the New Testament, we see how, how Paul and Barnabas were reconciled. We see how Paul and Mark were reconciled. How do we know about uh, Paul being reconciled with Barnabas? Well, what did we just read in Acts 11.24? It's written that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. faith. Acts was written many years after that happened by Luke. Luke was Paul's traveling companion. So if Luke got this from Paul. Luke got from Paul what a, what a good man Barnabas was, how he was full of faith. Uh, and then in, uh, in, in, get the right verse. It's always good to have the right verse. Well, it's not coming immediately here. First, it's in First or Second Timothy toward the end. Paul says, bring Mark to me because he's helpful in my ministry. So, so here, you know, there was a, a disaster at the beginning of the second missionary journey and years later, they're all part of the family. Barnabas is reconciled with, with Paul and Mark is reconciled with Paul. Um, we, had a, we had a great men's breakfast talk several months ago given by Gerald Tilley. And I don't know how many of you know Gerald Tilley. He is, the, he is Barnabas personified. But he, he gave a great talk about Barnabas and he asked, he began his Saturday morning men's breakfast talk with a very interesting question. He said, who do you think other than Jesus, is the most important person in the New Testament. And we struggled, you know, we said, oh, well, the Apostle John or the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or, you know, some, and he said, how about Barnabas? Because if Barnabas doesn't take hold of Paul in Acts 9.27 and bring him to the other disciples, we may never hear about Paul, okay? Uh, I, I just want to mention that, you know, God is sovereign. If Barnabas wasn't there... God would have used someone else. Uh, Chuck Swindoll in his, uh, in his biography of Paul says, God is sovereign and God has hundreds of Barnabases that he uses in every city, in every, uh, in every uh, church, in every college and seminary campus, in the mission field. He can always find a Barnabas to use. But uh, anyway, that was the role Barnabas played in Saul's ministry. Barnabas played a role in Mark's life in, in restoring him and encouraging him to keep going in ministry after he wasn't allowed to go on the second missionary journey. And then Mark became Peter's helper. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. We wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark without Mark. Without, without Mark helping Peter, 
Peter's ministry would have been less effective and, and we may not have had good things from Peter. So th think about Barnabas, how important he was. Uh, and, and one thing I thought about, has anyone been a Barnabas in your life? Come and take, when you were at a dead end, and I really think Paul was at a dead end. I mean, he, he, he started to preach in Damascus. That didn't work. He went on his uh, sojourn in Arabia. He came back. He's preaching again. Almost immediately gets kicked out of Damascus. Comes to, comes to Jerusalem. He's not going to make it at all. Barnabas introduces him to the disciples. So he's, he's, he's raring to go again for about 15 days. And oh, they're going to kill you. So you've got to get to Tarsus. So he gets out of there. But Barnabas took hold of him and, and rescued him. And then, and then we see, so I guess to go back to that, who, can you think of a Barnabas in your life? Did your life ever meet a dead end where someone came and took hold of you and put you back on your feet? And, and asking the question the other way, who has been, uh, who have you had a chance to be a Barnabas to in your life? You know, a, 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 a child, a friend, someone you know, have you been able to be an encourager? That's something to think about. We should look for opportunities to encourage each other. Because, um, but let's get back to Paul because we now want to talk a little bit about Paul. Paul went to Tarsus. His conversion was at, uh, I don't know, AD 35. So he goes off to Tarsus, maybe AD 38. And we think he's in Tarsus for about five years. And it says nothing about what Saul was doing in Tarsus. And what he was doing was not very much. <laughs> the, uh, uh, what I, there's a, there's a, some of you know from, from Men's Breakfast, I'm, I'm famous for having detailed, lengthy outlines. And if, if you want the detailed, lengthy outline, it's out on the table. You can, you can take it home and read it, or take it home, fold it up, use it as a doorstop, whatever's, whatever's, whatever's best. But, but, during those five years in Tarsus, most commentators believe that Saul suffered. He suffered at least some of the sufferings described in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he describes a vision that he had. Uh, and, and most scholars believe that vision occurred during those years in, in, in Tarsus. What else happened in Tarsus? He went home. He came home to his Jewish parents and said, hi, I'm home. Let me tell you about Jesus. What'd they say? Get out of our house. You're out of the will. You're, you're, we're, you're not going to associate with you anymore. He goes to the synagogue in, in, in Tarsus where he used to be a, a, a rock star, you know, the, the star uh, uh, Talmud student who went to Jerusalem, studied under, I can't say it, Gamaliel. <laughs> The great uh, Jewish scholar okay, says, let me, tell you, let me tell you in the synagogue about Jesus. What do they say? Get out of here. <laughs> let's, let's read about some of the things that, that happened in, in, second, in second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 27. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 27. For, uh, verse 23. I work so hard. I've been in prison. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I think at least some of those would have been at the synagogues in Tarsus. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I've been shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in open sea. I've been on the move in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my countrymen, from my own countrymen. I think that's referring to Tarsus. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. I've been in danger, okay? And, and I think some of those happened in Tarsus. He, was, he, he couldn't live with his parents. He couldn't live with his family. Uh, some commentators said he must have been living in Gentile houses if he lived in, with Gentiles in houses at all. Swindoll says he was, when, when, when Barnabas came to Tarsus and found something, he had to look for him. He had to look for him. And Chuck Swindoll suggests he finally found him in a cave, in a damp cave. Said, uh, Saul, <laughs> it's Barnabas, you remember me? He says, oh yeah. Would you like to come with me to Tarsus? He says, well, are you sure? <laughs> but, and he came, he came. So that's, that's what Saul went through. And, then, so we've, we've, and let's read about his... Uh, you know, he has this great vision at the beginning of, of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Swindoll thinks that was after one of his beatings, after he got thrown out of a synagogue in Tarsus. He was unconscious, and he, he had this vision of being caught up to heaven, uh, hearing and seeing inexpressible things. And he, he would have wanted to brag about that. He said, look how favored I am. God let me see this stuff. I met the resurrected Christ. I communed with him in Arabia, and I've seen this vision of it. But he said, no, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations there was given to me, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And the ESV, and if you follow the Greek faithfully, it says again, it says, to keep me from being a conceited at the beginning of verse 7, and he says it again at the end of verse 7, to keep me from being conceited. When any of you suffer sufferings and everything, is, is your first thought, thank you, God, you're keeping me from being conceited? Isn't your first thought, what are you doing that's to me? <laughs> but what did Saul learn? And, and, and we could have some fun saying, what, what is the thorn in the flesh? No one knows. There's, there's all kinds of speculations. Uh, I remember being a, a teenager in, the, in that First Baptist Church of Los Angeles, being back at the back and uh, listening to a sermon by a, a, a young uh, intern minister who had been our youth leader, and then he, he gives the sermon about this, and he lists a couple of possibilities, and he, he said, and some believe the thorn in the flesh was Mrs. Paul. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... Anyway, but what's the, what did he do then? He, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away with me. So where, where have we seen three times? We've, we've, just last week, you know, Peter's vision, the, 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 the tarp came down from heaven uh, with all the, the unclean animals three times. And the Lord told him, kill and eat, kill and eat. It happened three times. Peter denied the Lord three times. Um, Jesus restored him by asking, do you love me? Three times. Three times is, is very important. It's repetition. We learn things when we repeat them. Anyway, three times, I re it could have been more than three times, probably was. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight. Now, some translations may be different. I read delight as I rejoice in my sufferings. I delight in my sufferings. I'm content in my sufferings. I delight in weakness, in insults and hardships, in persecutions and difficulties, for when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Um, So that's one of the lessons he learned during his five years at Tarsus when things weren't going well. He learned to rejoice in obstacles and sufferings because that's when God's power would have a chance to work in him. Um, Some other very important verses, I think, that illustrate what he learned. One is Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13, where he says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether I've got plenty or whether I'm in want, I can be content because I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And uh, I have to admit, I was always puzzled by Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. And, and the incorrect way of reading that is, uh, I owe this to Pastor Mike, he says, does that mean I can uh, run faster than a speeding bullet? That I am more powerful than a locomotive? That I can leap tall buildings in a single bound? No, it's in the context of being content regardless of our circumstances. And what it's saying is you can be content through Jesus who is with you in all circumstances. You can bear all things because Christ is with you and helping you. Um, Other verses you might want to think about is how Jesus promises to always be with us. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The end of Romans chapter 8 talks about nothing. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And then finally, uh, Philippians 3, verses 3 through 8, were a little bit different topic. It's not really recovering from putting up with suffering or hardships, but it's talking about what do we have confidence in? What do we rely on when we meet with difficulties and troubles? And, and, And what Paul says is we don't rely on ourselves, We don't rely on other people. We don't rely on any worldly resource whatsoever. What we rely on is Christ. And the way he puts it in Philippians 3, he says, you know, in terms of your own flesh, he says, if you think you have confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He says, I did everything I could, but none of that counts for anything. What does he say in verse 7? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss. He says he considers it dung, awful, compared to what? I love the NIV translation of, of Philippians 3, verse 8, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When we look at how great Christ is, everything else fades away. Everything else fades away. That's where we can have our confidence, in the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, our Lord. And I, as I thought about this, I thought about I don't want to minimize how tough life can be. I don't want to minimize suffering. I mean, we... We have a whole grief share ministry that's on Thursdays that's exploding <laughs> because 
People lose loved ones, and it's terribly painful. It's terribly painful. Um, all of us, you know, at some time or another, we're, we're going to suffer trouble, hardship, loss, sadness, and grief. Um, and, and I thought about, you know, you, you say, well, rejoice in your sufferings. What, how, how ridiculous is that? How Pollyanna-ish, rejoice in your sufferings. I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, the worst thing that ever happened to me was, was my dad... Uh, <laughs> My dad died of cancer when I was 28, 29 years old. And what I can tell you is that was 40 years ago. I'm a lot of the way over it, but I'm not quite over that yet. Um, and, you know, he was, uh, he was the best man I ever knew. Uh, not only did I miss spending time with him, but his two great passions were, were baseball and music. And I don't know, you know anything about genies and my lovely kids, our son Keith was a pretty darn good baseball player. Our daughter Meredith was an excellent, excellent musician. And, and every baseball game I ever went to, from t-ball through senior year of high school, I said, boy, I wish my dad was here to watch Keith. And every concert I went to with Meredith from, from sixth grade through the Orange County Honor Youth Symphony Orchestra, greatest musical assembly I've ever heard. In 12th grade, I said, boy, I wish my dad could be here to hear this. But, but God knew better. God knew better. Uh, the example of all things working for good, um, to just put it in a nutshell, my relationship with my mother and my relationship with my sister was not very good when my dad died. But after my dad died, the circumstances went on, and in the passage of time, I saw my relationship with my mother and my relationship with my sister got a lot better. Not everything is good, but God can make everything work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all I can say is, I, if my sister's watching on YouTube, I know she's going to say, well, more on our relationship is not that great yet. <laughs> But I think Laura and I would both say, well, it's better than it was. <laughs> and it's getting better every day. <laughs> or at least every year or every couple of years. <laughs> so, and that's what I found. That is the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, I think a verse that, that you know, sort of, if, if you've got the idea that the, the Christian life is... Uh, <laughs> Steve Morris is the most humorous guy I've ever met. And uh, he's the Christian life is not all skills and beer. Steve, the Christian life is not all skittles and beer. But, uh, but uh, the verse, verse that it's suffering is part of it. And, you know, you see it in, in Romans, uh, Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. James 1, 2, and 4, I don't know if Paul copied from James, or James said, count it all joy when you encounter sufferings and trials of various kinds. Peter, I think, puts it best, talking about the imperishable hope we have in the resurrection. He says, and this you, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, you know, he says, you greatly rejoice in this, verse uh, 6, even though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I mean, Peter had some trials. He was crucified upside down, for heaven's sake. But, 
But it says, even though you don't see Jesus, you believe in him, you know him, you experience him, and in this life you're living by faith, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I like the NIV better than most translations. An inexpressible and glorious joy. And I guess that's what I, that's what I want to end with. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord in Philippians 3 and the inexpressible joy that comes from knowing Jesus in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. So did we, uh, did we accomplish our mission? Did we, uh, did we, were we able to see Jesus in the founding of the church at Antioch? These unknown believers went to Antioch and they started preaching about the Lord Jesus and it said the hand of the Lord was with them and they greatly increased in numbers. So I hope we've seen Jesus in the beginning of the church at Antioch. Have we seen Jesus in the life of Barnabas? What a great example of encouragement. And and we know he was absolutely pivotal in the life of Paul. He was absolutely pivotal in the ministry of Mark, which impacted also Peter. Have we seen Jesus working through the life of Barnabas and in the life of Paul? Paul, who suffered so much. You know, he spent all of his young years uh, in seminary in, in Jerusalem, and he started off really on the wrong foot, persecuting the, the church of Christ, but then he met the risen Lord. And he spent time reflecting in Arabia, and he, said, and he got it all figured out. He said, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the one I, w- I was so concerned that these Christians had it wrong about our Messiah suffering a shameful criminal's death on a cross that I wanted to wipe him out. Now I understand. He died for me on the cross. He forgave my sins. I want to tell everyone. I want to tell everyone starting right now. And in Damascus, he got shut down. Damascus, he got shut down twice. In Jerusalem, he got shut down again. He went to five years of obscurity in Tarsus. He had to wait Eight years from his conversion to his beginning of his effective ministry in Tarsus before he could really get going. But during that time, what did he learn? He learned to rejoice in his sufferings. He learned to be content in, 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 without in want or in plenty. And he learned about the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And what I wanted to say, if, you know, if all of you know Christ Jesus already, that's great. That's great. What did did we say about Barnabas? He encouraged them to remain steadfast in their devotion to the Lord. If you don't know Jesus, you need to. I mean, I don't want to be too... uh, (laughs) Years ago, my wife and I had... When we were first married, we were attending First Baptist Church of Los Angeles, even though we were living in uh, Orange County. And uh, that's a long drive, and we made it less and less frequently... And, and I'll never forget one time I was up there, and uh, this guy, this, one of the personable, outgoing old guys says, hey, how you doing? I said, great. Haven't seen you here for a long time. I said, right. He says, uh, uh, he says well, you know, we're down in Orange County. It's hard to make it, make it up here. He said, well, you, are you going to church down there? I said, no, no. He says, you're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was the kind of guy... He was the kind of guy who could say anything and get away with it because he was, he was shaking your hand and smiling while he said that. And, and I took it as, a, as an encouraging exhortation. And not, normally I, I can't stand being told what to do. But, but I, so what I want to say is, if you don't know the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, on the one hand, you're missing out on the best thing there is. But on the other hand, and this is serious, 
you're going to hell. <laughs> you are a sinner. <laughs> we say, well, what am I? I'm not that bad. You are not devoting your life to the God who created everything and who created you and created you for what he wants you to do in your life. And if, if you don't recognize that and say, you know, I've been living to please myself. I need to repent of that. I need to live to please God. That's what he offers. And, and it, it's not just, uh, it doesn't just get you even. It gets you way past even. It gets you to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. It fills you with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So if you want to talk to someone, you can talk to me, talk to Simon, uh, talk to David, talk to any of the elders. I see John and Tony. There's probably some more elders here. Talk to Justin. We had some jokes. Justin's not here second hour. He's, he's doing the interviews for the kids. But talk to someone. You're missing out on the greatest deal there ever was. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it points us to Jesus. From the Old Testament all through the New Testament, it all points to Jesus. We thank you so much, so much. We, we pray that we can apply these things in our lives and that we can be an encouragement to everyone we know. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.